Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining me today is Sam Bendet, uh, one of the talented members of the Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also a fellow uh, at the Center for a New American Security. Uh, Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us, especially given how busy you guys are there. Thanks for having me back. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Sam, obviously, we are now in the third uh, or fourth week uh, of uh, the third week of the Ukraine war, I guess. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, continues uh, what is a very brutal uh, campaign. Uh, Today, we've got uh, four uh, Central European prime ministers, uh, including the Polish prime minister, uh, visiting Kiev uh, tomorrow. uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is going to address a joint session of Congress. Uh, And meanwhile, we have events that are unfolding on the battlefield. Um, You're watching this as part of the whole team on a basically a 24-7 basis. Uh, What are some of the surprises you're seeing? What are not? Uh, Where are we right now in in terms of how this campaign is unfolding? I think one of the biggest surprises, uh, but in hindsight, it probably shouldn't be viewed as a surprise, is the resiliency of the Ukrainian military force. Uh, Prior to the war, there was probably um, a bit of a skewed analysis of the military balance in favor of a much larger, seemingly more professional Russian military force that has had a lot of practice in different parts of the world, such as Syria, with different mission sets that constantly drilled and exercised and practiced different types of uh, warfare Again, at least that's how it came across. And so it is surprising that the Ukrainian military, the Ukrainian resistance is able to stall the Russian military at certain points, at certain fronts. It is surprising, again, purely objectively speaking, that the Russian military is grinding along, that it hasn't been able to make uh, fast, quick uh, advances that it probably hoped for initially. Uh, It is trying to correct its initial advance into Ukraine by pulling up more forces, but at the same time, it's getting bogged down in more logistics and other related issues as it is trying to ramp up a much larger force with different types of weapons against Ukraine. We are seeing the Russian military advancing. If you look at the maps over the past 20 days, Russian military is gaining ground. They're gaining cities. They're linking up. But they're also doing that at the horrific expense to the civilian population. So a lot of what I have studied, at least with respect to, for example, Russian military's use of military autonomy and military robotics, boiled down to the military actually saying that they want to use these systems to make missions more effective, to save uh, lives, soldiers' lives, to save uh, civilian lives, presumably, We're seeing none of that. We're seeing a lot of destruction. And there are a lot of casualties on both sides, uh, on the Ukrainian side, amongst the civilians, amongst the military, and of course, amongst the Russian military itself. Uh, The casualty rate that probably was unexpected, again, in light of Russia's prior preparations for and discussion of large-scale warfare. 
What are some of the capabilities, right? You said, Sam, uh, you know, you're one of the world's leading experts on autonomy and the Russian um, military, uh, as well as AI uh, broadly uh, that uh, Russia has been marshalling. You and I for many years have been talking about unmanned developments in the Russian military, and you said that they're holding back a little bit. What are some of the capabilities that the Russians are now starting to bring increasingly uh, to the battlefield? Right. They were holding back initially in the first several days. We didn't see the capacity that they discussed, that they practiced with. Uh, after the first week, we are starting to see more Russian UAV use. Uh, and we know that because uh, some, of, some of those military UAVs are shut down or captured or they land because they're damaged. Russian military is ramping up its reconnaissance fire and reconnaissance strike contours. That is the practice where UAVs are surveying the, ter- the territory, identifying the targets, and then guide different types of weapons, such as multiple launch rocket systems, long-range rockets, Air Force, to those targets. And we're starting to get videos from Russia of different types of UAVs actually flying in that intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capacity. We are, again, we're getting evidence of a lot of those UAVs finally getting shut down, meaning they're actually in operation. Most of those UAVs are for um, essentially surveillance, but the Russian military also uh, showcased two uh, combat UAV capabilities. They released a video of an Orion combat drone striking a ground target in eastern part of Ukraine. That's Russia's newest and uh, long range, uh, sort of longest ranged um, UAV. Um, it flies at up to 250 kilometers. And then it showed the videos of Four Post R, which is the Russian. Uh, redesign of the Israeli uh, older Israeli model that they purchased over a decade ago. Um, they have a, an R designation, meaning for Russia. So four posts are conducting both ISR as well as combat missions over Ukraine as well. So they're bringing up this capability. And to some extent, this capability was probably more or less organic to the um, larger sort of Russian force that was stationed near Ukrainian border. Now that more forces are entering Ukraine, they're probably using that capability more and more. And they're going to continue to use uh, different types of ISR UAVs like Eleron, like Tachyon, like Orlan 10, and others that we've seen, as well as possibly ramp up their combat capability with the use of four post R, as well as Orion combat UAVs. And all of the information that those UAVs collect goes back to command and control either um, in Belarus or in Russia on the border with Ukraine. Uh, possibly that information goes back to the National Defense Coordination Center in Moscow, which is supposed to be kind of the, the clearing house for all military related information. And that data gets analyzed and possibly fed back to the Russian forces. But again, we probably won't know how, how that's done because at this point, this data is classified and we're, we're getting right. eyewitness accounts of how Russian military fights and how the Ukrainian defenders are fighting against this type of Russian capability. Let me uh, bring um, electronic uh, and cyber uh, operations, right? I mean, the entire world is sort of watching and saying, wow, um, 
you know, we expected Russian cyber operations to be more uh, effective and damaging uh, worldwide. There's ample evidence that America and its uh, allies uh, in cyberspace, the Five Eyes uh, and beyond, are working very, very hard to try to uh, contain uh, Russia. Um, and in the electromagnetic sphere as well, I'm trying to use a Russian word here, uh, uh, Sam, because the Russians are always fond of using the word sphere. Oh, they um, love that word, yeah. yeah. They love that word, military technical sphere, <laughs> the electromagnetic sphere. Um, you know, we, we also expected to see more potency from Russia's electromagnetic capabilities, and we haven't seen that either. Uh, and it looks like America's allies and partners uh, that do have some potent capabilities may be contributing on that front as well. Right? Talk to us a little bit about how both of these fields are sort of uh, unfolding and what your guys' estimation is on why things are playing out the way they are. Because again, Russia has always loved to sort of show its dominance of the electromagnetic space, whether it was in Syria, uh, you know, it tried uh, things uh, obviously in Georgia in 2014, uh, it used, you know, jamming to great effect. It used uh, mass uh, fires uh, to great effect. Uh, and, and we're seeing, you know, what, what are we seeing on electromagnetic and cyber from your guys' perspective? So it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting fact. Again, uh, we know that Russian military has the capability, as you just mentioned. We know that there's been a lot of investment in different types of systems. We know that uh, they worked on working out tactics, procedures of using W uh, against different types of targets and uh, different types of threats. We also know that electronic warfare is basically organic with counter UAV warfare in the Russian forces because no EW exercise took place without a counter UAS component and any counter UAV drill obviously has electronic warfare components. But again, initially in the first week or so of the invasion, that capability seemed to be absent. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, uh, what earlier analysts have identified as uh, Russian desire to do this quickly and on the cheap kind of those thunder runs into Ukraine hoping that uh, Ukrainian military resistance and civilian resistance would collapse. And again, that was a very faulty assumption as, as, we, have, um, as we have figured out. Now they're pulling out those forces to the front. We are starting to see evidence of uh, electronic uh, and early warning command and control systems damage that were captured. Um, but Russian EW weapons presence doesn't explain why, for example, Bayraktar drones can still operate with almost impunity against uh, against Russian forces. Even those attacks were pinpointed against the select number of Russian targets, columns or formations that were not well defended, which again, should not be the case from what we know about Russia. Even those attacks were, were pinpointed. It doesn't explain why Russian militaries, for example, unable to deal with the Barakar drones because prior to the war, they claimed that their echelon defense, meaning their early warning, their electronic warfare and and their air defense systems can potentially deal with Bayraktar because it is a slow-flying, low-flying drone. And again, we know that capability was present in Syria. Uh, Russian electronic warfare forces even buzzed American drones and aircraft over Syria in 2018, which prompted official Pentagon complaints. That capability exists. We've also seen Russian electronic warfare capability at a more local scale via um, a Lear 3 drone, meaning it's an Orlan 10 UAV that is equipped with electronic warfare uh, jammers that can hijack cell tower stations. And supposedly that capability was even deployed in Kazakhstan just a month before uh, Russian military went into Ukraine. 
again, it doesn't explain why, why Russia didn't use those systems initially. It is likely that Russian military is using electronic warfare. It's probably using those systems in a very select fashion because right now the military is in the midst of the civilian population, especially in the cities. And so it appears that uh, Russian military doesn't always or isn't always able to distinguish, for example, friendly uh, electronic channels from unfriendly and adversarial electronic channels when EW systems are used, which would explain why those systems were not used initially and why Russian military and their allies actually relied on, on commercial networks and uh, unsecured walkie-talkies. Uh, all of that is, again, it, it seems very strange when juxtaposed against Russian practices and tactics, everything they've done so far and everything that they've written about. But again, nothing about this war is, um, is by the book at this point. And so we are rewriting a lot of assumptions on the fly. It is also likely that Ukrainian defenders are using some form of electronic warfare or, or jamming. Um, for example, some of the UAVs, Russian UAVs that crash land over Ukraine seem, seem not to be damaged by fire. So it is likely that either they malfunction on their own or Ukrainian defenders are actually using successful jamming tactics. We don't have a good aperture over that, but it seems to be very likely. But I think as the Russian military is going to advance further and it is going to close the ring around Kiev, or at least as it seeks to do so, and as it seeks to surround larger cities, some form of electronic warfare would be used, even in the form of a layer three a UAV borne system that can hijack cell towers and um, send messages to people's phones and basically hijack their cell phones communication with the cell towers. The after action report for this war will be very interesting, also in part because of the Western capabilities uh, that Ukraine may also be benefiting from. Uh, Absolutely. But, but look, we should, not be, we should not be judging this war as a Russian loss in a purely objective sense in an after action report. We can say and we can estimate that they've done badly initially. They were disorganized, unorganized. They used unorthodox tactics. Uh, they used very strange uh, analysis of what they would encounter in Ukraine. But at the same time, again, if you look at the map, Russian military is advancing. So it may be losing soldiers. It may be losing vehicles. It may be losing systems. Their convoys may be hit. But overall, they're advancing. They're advancing from the south. They're advancing westward from Donbass. They're still advancing sort of in the north around Kiev, around Kharkiv. So right. we, we need to understand what the state of the Ukrainian military is at this point and what kind of weapons and systems they have. We know they've retained some capability, and we, we see that in uh, videos. But again, this is an information environment. A lot of this war is playing out on TikTok and Twitter uh, and, uh, and Telegram channels, and that's not the full picture. So Ukrainians are very good at this stage of information warfare because the world now has, um, has this image of sort of Russian military is inept and incapable of achieving its objectives. But if you look at the actual situation on the ground, Russian military is advancing. It is taking much heavier losses than it probably originally anticipated and much heavier losses than it probably um, predicted in their analysis of warfare prior to the actual invasion. But we have to remember that they are advancing and that the Ukrainian side is still retreating on many fronts. 
Um, let me uh, just give a shout out to our sponsors, a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Um, to to uh, that point, uh, Sam, um, uh, you know, Ukraine is doing uh, an exceptionally heroic uh, job. Uh, negotiations uh, continue and are at an impasse uh, between uh, the Russian and the Ukrainian uh, sides. Um, it seems that Zelensky is saying we will adopt neutrality. Uh, Russia wants, uh, obviously, Luhansk, Donbass, Crimea, as well as the corridor they've just created. Uh, and there's a sense that that's a step too far and it justifies uh, two invasions, right? So there are reasons why Kiev may not uh, want to do that. It will be interesting to see what the after action is from the conference of prime ministers meeting with uh, Zelensky today. Um, how long does this war take in your guys' estimation, given the way the Russians are making progress? Is there a date that you guys think uh, will will culminate in at least the takeover of the country? And does Russia end up holding it? My sense more is this is a punitive action on Putin's part, that he sort of wants to punish the Ukrainians. I can't have it, so I'm going to mess this up and make it really hard for them. And then maybe I just retreat and keep the parts uh, that I want, or I put a puppet in there. Hey, you know, we'll see. This could work. They're already trying to contrive, for example, referendum uh, elections in Militopol, um, uh, Berdyansk, uh, and um, uh, Kherson, uh, I think. So what's what's the sense on sort of when the kinetic part of this, uh, the organized sort of kinetic part of this, ends, and when we and and what is it that we transition to at that point? Well, I think there are two ways to answer that. Number one, uh, probably in a couple of weeks' time, Russian military would be exhausted. That is its initial capability, its logistics, its supply lines. Um, and, uh, and the pure psychological factor of fighting in Ukraine would, um, would put sort of an initial stop to the Russian advance. So they would need to resupply, regroup, reorganize. This is where we can possibly expect some kind of a ceasefire arrangement, some kind of resumption of peace talks. Uh, it is unlikely, and, and again, and this is the second part uh, to your question, uh, it is unlikely that uh, Russia would be able to install a pro-Russia government in Kiev right now. This invasion and the way it proceeded has galvanized a lot of Ukrainians against the Russians, especially in the eastern part of the country that at least back in 2014, 2015 seemed to be going Russia's way. So it is unlikely that Russia would be able to control all of Ukraine. And the diplomats would have to negotiate the status of Donbass, status of the Crimea. The status of Ukraine as, uh, as it stands now is that it, uh, most of the country, I should say, uh, at least as evidenced by uh, social media, as evidenced by articles, analysis, by by Ukrainians themselves talking, most of the country isn't going to assume an overly friendly stance towards Russia after the last three weeks. It is highly unlikely. So some kind of a diplomatic solution would probably have to be negotiated where Ukraine retains uh, its independence, its independent decision-making, where it would have to rebuild after the horrific damage that has been inflicted on its cities and industries uh, again, it is unlikely if Russia is going to get everything at once from a potential final negotiation, but it's difficult to predict how that would, how that would go. Just as um, 
uh, it would have been impossible for us to see uh, that three weeks after the initial Russian invasion, we would be at this point in time and not dealing with another scenario, at least the way the Russians themselves were discussing and practicing for. Um, let me uh, ask uh, two, two uh, final questions. One is, what is the nature of the request that the Russians are making of the Chinese? What are kind of the capability? I mean, there's the financial element of this uh, ask. There's also a military capability request of this ask, uh, which is a little bit surprising and must not be pleasant for Putin because he does he bristles at the sense that he is the junior partner in this, something which the Chinese take every opportunity to remind them of. Um, what are what are the kind of capabilities that they want from China? That's an interesting question. Um, I think at this point in time, uh, Russian military would want maybe higher end products from China. Uh, my number one guess would be that it wants to secure the supply of semiconductors and microchips and other important components for its microelectronics industry. Uh, I think Russia did not anticipate the extent of international sanctions and the extent of those sanctions impact on the Russian economy right now and in the coming months. Uh, in some sectors of the Russian economy, there's an outright panic. Uh, probably um, in the um, information and, and the, in the communication technology sector, which was one of the Russian darlings over the past decade and one of the areas of much greater cooperation with China than possibly across other economic um, uh, spheres, to use the Russian term. Uh, again, it's unknown um, whether China would agree to this ask. It's a, it's a very interesting balancing situation right now because... China stands to gain a lot more from its overall trade and economic relations with the larger West and other parts of the world, which today are concerned about Russian actions. China stands to gain a lot more than uh, from its actual bilateral trade with Russia. And so the question asked is whether it would be China using Russia as a political tool to gain leverage or Russia would be crafty enough to use its relationship with China to gain uh, some kind of leverage um, in its impending negotiations with the international community over the fate of Ukraine. Uh, and obviously, Jake Sullivan, the U.S. National Security uh, Advisor, uh, spent uh, seven hours with the Yang Jiechi uh, yesterday, China, China's top diplomat. Uh, they met in Rome, uh, during which Sullivan made clear the repercussions for China, uh, which will be uh, extreme uh, for continuing to back Russia in the war. Let me ask, we've got about two minutes left. Let me ask you uh, two questions. Uh, in uh, the Russia analysis uh, circle, I uh, was uh, a Soviet uh, studies major way back in the day or Soviet politics major. Um, and uh, thankfully, some of those skills are still relevant. There is this debate, uh, Sam, about whether or not Putin would get pushed too far and what that constitutes. Um, you know, there's talk about a chemical weapons um, use. Uh, there's talk about a nuclear demonstration, which you and I have discussed as well. Is there a danger of pushing Putin too far? And what is pushing Putin too far, right? I mean, there was this sense that the MiG-29 transfer, the Polish MiG-29s were a step too far. Russia has a tendency of looking at every self-deterrence uh, as weakness, right? What did we see? Strikes closer to the Polish border. 
demand by the Russians, cessation of all arms uh, transfers uh, to Ukraine. Uh, what is pushing Putin too far? And what's the line between pushing him too far and letting him get away with it? Or is that because that's what ultimately he's trying to do, right? As Gary Kasparov says, he's hiding behind a nuclear shield as he tries to push you off the stage. Well, we have to remember that uh, Russia's use of nuclear weapons in defense uh, was, I think, enshrined all the way back to late 90s, has been reconfirmed in the 2000s. Um, but that seems to be a defensive function, meaning if Russia itself is attacked, then uh, Russia can potentially resort to much more lethal types of weapons. Russians' actions are very different. It isn't defending. It is, in fact, right now attacking, no matter how it phrases um, its war in Ukraine and uh, no matter what kind of verbal acrobatics it is using right now. So I think it's, at least to me, it's not clear right now how far Putin would be pushed. Um, it doesn't appear that um, there is a serious challenge to him right now amongst his own government and even amongst the people as this war was initially bungled, even as he's publicly making scapegoats of the intelligence community that was supposedly um, giving him the wrong or uh, um, incomplete information. So he's still very much secure at this point as, as a leader of the country. And so it's unclear how far he could be pushed before he uh, uses the argument of more lethal weapon systems. I think outright presence of NATO forces in Ukraine would be a very significant escalation of that debate. Because right now, the international community limited itself to supplying weapons and systems. And there, were, there are no official boots on the ground. There may be volunteers from NATO countries, but that's a different story. So I think it would be interesting to see the reaction of U.S. Congress after Ukrainian President Zelensky speaks tomorrow on Wednesday and what kind of arguments he makes and what kind of decisions are going to be reached by the U.S. Congress together with the U.S. President on um, increasing and strengthening uh, both American as well as internationalist military and other types of assistance to Ukraine. Was it a mistake not to send the MiG-29s and are MiG-29s important or as the United States says, are more anti-tank weapons, more anti-air weapons, as well as heavy uh, anti-air uh, weapons, right? John Kirby is on the record calling on countries that have similar air defense systems as Ukraine, hey, ship those over, right? Revelation now that Iskander has a decoy, right? So that makes it a little bit uh, tougher to shoot down. Uh, although the Ukrainians have been success, su successful at shooting them down. What, what is the kind of aid and was the MiG-29 decision a bad decision from your standpoint in terms of real Ukrainian military capability? Well, look, I, I'm not on the ground there. I'm not in Eastern Europe. It's difficult for me to make uh, a judgment on what people have called for. Uh, as far as giving aid to Ukraine. But it appears right now, the way conflict is going, that air defense anti-tank systems are probably going to be more effective against the Russian advance than an actual aircraft um, in the air because aircraft need a lot of logistics. Uh, they, need, um, they need a very significant supply chain. Air defense systems and um, anti-tank systems and other uh, ground-based systems that are capable of blunting Russian advance do not require the same type of uh, care and logistics as manned aircraft. And so, again, air defense, um, anti-tank, and other systems 
uh, which can have a very discernible effect on the ground, immediate effect on the ground, are probably more applicable at this stage in the war. Uh, last question. The attack of the base uh, in eastern Poland came as a surprise to some uh, and a little bit of skittishness on people to discuss what exactly was destroyed. 30 cruise missiles uh, struck at 35 dead, um, uh, was, I, I believe about 100 wounded uh, of uh, international fighters, and it was a Ukrainian training base. Were a lot of important material lost at that base from your understanding? I believe the base was struck inside Ukraine. You said eastern Poland? Was, I, I'm um, sorry, close to the, uh, excuse me, in eastern Ukraine, close to 12 miles from the Polish border. I should have made that clear. Sorry. Right. Uh, so I, I think there's some conflicting evidence of what was actually, who was actually present on the ground in, um, at that base, what was actually at that base when it was struck. So I think uh, we're still kind of getting details and some form of competing information over what was there. If, in fact, uh, these were volunteers who were training to help um, Ukrainian military, then the Russian forces considered them fair game because they were inside Ukrainian territory on their own. Um, Russian military has the potential to reach any point in Ukraine with its missiles, with its aircraft. And so it is not totally surprising that they were able to reach a location in the Western part of the country while most of the fighting is now happening in the east and and, in the center. So um, again, it's not exactly clear how many people died and how many people were wounded and who died uh, specifically, whether these were international volunteers or Ukrainians who were training there. So I'll wait to make a final judgment once more information becomes available. But again, at this point, Ukrainian military, Ukrainian defenders have to assume that they could be reached anywhere in the country with Russian weapons and systems. And Russians are looking at all of Ukraine as a potential target. And because of the Russian military capability, no corner of Ukraine can be safe at this point from a potential strike. So this has to be taken into consideration when it comes to training, when it comes to basing, and when it comes to the movement of forces. Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for being so generous with your time. Give my best uh, to the team there and look forward to having you back on, uh, you and uh, Michael uh, and Jeff back on uh, again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fargo. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.